Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Today is Tuesday, the 6th of November. Is that correct? That sounds about right, doesn't it? This is accurate. Okay. This is the third episode of our podcast, which we call Two Doctors on a Drive. We are uh, currently driving to Kristen's place of employment, which is called... I'll let her tell you what it's called. I'm currently working at Highland Ridge Hospital in Midvale, Utah. And I love it. It's Midvale. Midvale. I was trying to figure out where you worked the other day. I was trying to tell somebody you work at Highland Ridge, which is up in... And I think I called it Sandy, but apparently it's Midvale. I knew it wasn't Sandy. Well, this morning, let's get to our podcast. Although, we should mention our brief, briefly mention our sponsor, Aqua Recovery Center. You guys know, you've listened to all you've heard us talk about Aqua. At one point, both of us worked there. I still work there. Aqua is a 20-bed residential facility for adults and specializing in drug and alcohol treatment. You can find them at www. Yep, I still say the W's commented on it last time and I'll comment on it next time. Every time. Dot Aqua Recovery. Aqua is spelled A-C-Q-U-A recovery.com Okay. Well, let's start off. Do you want to tell us about your pap smear? I don't What? <laughs> I, I don't actually think you need to put on the dot com. I mean, I think it's unless oh unless God. you specify No, no, no. Listen. Let's, let's talk this through. Unless you specify something else the assumption is dot com am i wrong it's your assumption i think i'm right no if you put if you put here's what you do if you put the dot com on there it'll take you to aqua recovery center's website if you just put aqua recovery it'll take you to a google search and then you can choose which one you think is aqua recovery's website I'm going to try it tonight, and I'll let you know. If you're typing in the exact address, it's aquarecovery.com. If you type in Aqua Recovery, it'll take you to a Google search, and you can pick which one of those you think might be Aqua's website. Now let's talk about what we really are here to talk about. The BYU. What? The game. Well, It was was a great game. Yeah, we didn't get blown out. Got down to the two-yard line with seven seconds left. And two plays. We had 11 seconds, actually, and then we spiked the ball, and the second and goal on the two-yard line, there were seven seconds left. Usually, you can run two plays in seven seconds, particularly if they're quick plays. Now, if you run a running play and get stopped and don't have any timeouts, you'll ne- you won't get two plays. Wah, wah, wah. So, I'm not sure what the play call was, but... The quarterback took the snap, and he looked over to throw the ball. It looked like he thought his guy was covered, so he decides to take off running, and he got stopped on the two-yard line. We lost. 21 to 16. Remember that part where you mentioned it's tough to be a Cougar fan? I think I could have won that game. Um, Well, I think I could have run two plays, for sure. That kid needs to throw the ball away if his guy was covered. Not try to run. Okay. I really liked the game, though. I thought it was, it was exciting. Good. It, was it was a good game. I was really happy with watching it. So. Good effort. Yeah, always better to win, but go Cougars. That was a great game. And then the Utes got 
blasted. Shut down. That was that was, that was hard of, to watch. Looked out of character for them. They had been yeah. playing so well. So as soon as they got blasted, I thought, well, maybe we got a chance. And then I looked at us, and we were playing okay. And I thought, okay, maybe we got a chance. But then we found a way to lose it. So yeah. don't know if we'll beat Utah this year. Okay. So I made a pap smear comment. You know why I said that? <laughs> because I've recently had one. No, because you talked about your mammogram last time. I thought we were doing all your physical checkups. Oh, uh, let's do that podcast. every other time. Okay. Every other episode. All right, you talked me into it. I think we wanted to start this morning with some uh, news. I think we have a topic we're going to talk about. We have some follow-up. <clears throat> excuse me. We also have some follow-up from last time, but... Uh, I think we want to talk about uh, maybe some news in the world of addiction, and we might do this at the beginning of every podcast if there's something newsworthy, but the the newsworthy event that I have read about this week is the FDA, in its infinite wisdom, has decided to approve a medication which they which is apparently five to ten times stronger than fentanyl. It's not fentanyl. Oh, I thought that's what I just read. It's called Desuvia. Oh, five no, to ten times no. more potent than fentanyl? Yeah. No, I think morphine. You can reread it. I will. But I think it was morphine. So, anyway, Desuvia is apparently five to ten times more potent than either fentanyl or morphine. Either way, it's supposedly pretty potent. It's a pill form. Okay. Apparently, it's five to ten times more potent than pharmaceutical fentanyl. Wait, was I right? Yes, you were right. Shut up. I'm Can gonna, I record that? I'm going to... Anyway, super potent, I guess, is the point, and yeah. comes in a pill form. Anyway, it's interesting because what, from what I was reading, the head of the FDA's committee that votes on these type of medications, which is the Analgesics and Anesthetics Committee or something like that, the head of that committee opposes this, but somehow the committee voted to pass it anyway. Now the company has the company came out and said that it's necessary because it what they what what the company say oh it's pre-measured it's a pre-measured something uh pre-measured short acting Okay well I so, talked here about the the one of the co-founders is an anesthesiologist and she says that the reason why that this medication is so important is because it will reduce opioid dosing errors in hospital and ambulatory care centers. And there's a quote, she said, caregivers can make these mistakes as they calculate the amount of clear liquid painkillers such as morphine to administer intravenously. Okay. Right. I think I got caught up on, I'd love to know how many people have died from a dosing error in right. the hospital. I'm sure there are. Yes. Is it even close to the amount of people we lost in... From um, opioid overdoses on the street. But here's here was where I was really perplexed. It says, a 2016 survey conducted by the Federal Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, SAMHSA, shows narcotics are rarely stolen from doctor's offices, clinics, hospitals, or pharmacies. Can that be true? I think the number of healthcare workers and diversion is Oh, uh, yeah, that's an interesting point. High. That's an interesting point. So, uh, I mean, we 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 know personally So what 
what they're doing is they're going out and poll. I'm guessing, although I don't know that what they did with the study you just quoted, but I'm guessing they're polling people in substance abuse treatment and asking them how they obtained their medications. And very few people in substance abuse treatment have it, obtained their medications by stealing them from a doctor's office. They stole them from their grandmother's medicine cabinet or they bought them on the street. Yeah. But I think that you're right. Diversion and diversion of medications, both from hospitals and from doctor's offices, is pretty high. Well, it says in the next paragraph, the rate of overdose deaths among healthcare workers is relatively high. Wait, say that again. The rate of overdose deaths among healthcare workers. Okay. So there's the diversion. Okay, so great. So now what do we got? The concept of this medication that they're now approving is that it's going to be used in hospitals mostly, right? Yeah. I don't know that they're going to be able to say, I don't know that they're going to say you can only use it in hospitals. It's a pill. I'll bet you can write a prescription for it. Yeah. Now, there may be some restrictions on it. They haven't really said too much about that yet, but you may be able to get this not in a hospital. But the point is, if the rate of overdose deaths among healthcare workers is relatively high, why are healthcare workers dying of overdose? Because they can steal potent drugs like fentanyl. Yeah. Well, now you got something five or ten times more potent than fentanyl. Why are the overdose death rates amongst in America going up? Because now there's a whole bunch of heroin laced with... Fentanyl. Fentanyl. So now they've got a drug that's five to ten times more potent than fentanyl. And it'll be obtainable by a prescription... So the one, you know, the thing that struck me that you just read was talking about how, well, there's a couple things that, that overdose death thing is, overdose death thing from improper dosing in a hospital can't even come close to the amount of deaths we see on the street from overdose. So they're worrying about a small problem while feeding a giant problem, yeah, which bugs potentially. me. Potentially, which bugs me a lot about that. And you brought up the, you know, what did the uh, manufacturer of OxyContin right claim when they came out with their super potent? Yeah, it won't. Uh, this won't have any problems. It won't be abusable. Yeah. The concept. Well, this this pill already is abusable because the concept behind OxyContin was actually a decent concept, right? It's got a it's got a longer half-life because of how they've formulated the stuff. Now, people with substance abuse disorders or drug addicts figured out how to uh, bypass that that wasn't very difficult sustained release thing, right? Turns out wasn't very difficult. It wasn't wasn't very difficult and the <laughs> Not company rocket science. company could have known that and should have known that, but their concept was okay. Yeah. The concept of this pill is it's a short-acting pill, which is exactly what uh, drug addicts are looking for. Yeah. The quicker you can get a pill into your system, the greater the buzz, which is why addicts try to find quicker ways to get it into their system. When you see most pain pills, most addicts are not taking pain pills the proper way. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, they're not taking them as recorded on the bottle, but they're also not just swallowing them. They're chewing them up, or they're snorting them, or they're smoking them, or they're dissolving them in something and shooting them. Right, they're they're figuring out ways to get it to their system quicker. Yeah. Well, this one's already bypassed that. This isn't even like OxyContin. It's already short acting. Now you can make it even shorter acting and more potent. I don't see how this is going to reduce overdose deaths at all. This is for sure going to increase overdose deaths in my mind. I don't know what you think about it. 
Well, I, I think it's a scary time to throw out a really potent opioid with the issues that we've already got. I'm not sure. I'd love to see the statistics of how many dosing fatalities have happened. I know they happen. Is it the, it's got to be a risk benefit to society issue. Is this? But it's pretty uh, rare, don't you think? I think so. Don't you think if, like, so we live in Provo, where there's a pretty good-sized hospital, Utah Valley Regional Medical Center. I think if there was an overdose death there 10 times a year, we'd hear about it. I think so. I, I think so. I think it's super rare. Yeah. And it, it doesn't seem to be a problem of, hey, we don't have enough pain medicine to control some guy's pain. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't seem to be an issue at all. Okay, well, that's most of our thoughts on this. It just seems like a really terrible time to throw out a more potent medication. Yeah, but uh, I could go on about the the study that I um, read this week real briefly was uh, an uh, opioid that they're considering for depression. And again, I go back to the, God, really? Yeah. Really? Now, we talked about this, and, and there apparently is a, a situation where where uh, an opioid would help in certain cases where the person has, what did you call it? It's the syndrome itself is called endorphin deficiency syndrome, but it's pretty rare and it's pretty, it's impossible to really diagnose. It's really a syndrome that some guy has proposed as a possible syndrome. It's not, there's no real way to diagnose it, but yeah. But uh, you're right. I mean, why are we looking for more reasons to use opiates, which is killing people in the United States well, at, uh, at a greater pace than anything we've seen in any time recently? And and we're both opiate addicts, recovering opiate addicts. I get it. I I went. I was in some dark times and referred to as depression. I'm sure. Where when I would take an opiate, that depression Which, went away. Yeah. Of course, it worked yeah. for a short period of time. Yeah, everything yeah. felt better, you know, and that's that's of course going to work on some. And and I would propose that's you know what they're doing with ketamine too is the short acting. Well, it works really great on depression. You know, the studies on ketamine that show that it's only working for a short period of time, and we're already using it. Right. I think is a little bit scary. I think, gosh, we really we should study that a little bit more to know the long term effects of using a medication like that that's mood and mind altering for mental illness because what happens to those people they get a ketamine shot a ketamine injection they feel tons better average about three days sometimes even less than that 30 minutes to three days they get these great effects and then what well then you do it again and then we do it again so so now we're just well i mean no, long term. No, I think you've hit the nail on the head. There is it is possible that I can see a mechanism whereby opiates could help depression in the short run. The problem, depression, is not really a short term disease that's quickly curable. Like opiates for acute pain have been proven to be beneficial, and in chronic pain they don't work at all because of the nature of the medication. And that is, if you keep taking it, you build up tolerance, you need more, you need more, you need more. Well, in depression, some people's depression lasts very long periods of time, years sometimes. So now what? Now you're using an opiate for depression, and then next year you gotta use two times that much, and the year after that you gotta use five times that much, and eventually you're right back where every opiate addict ends up, and that is using so much that a doctor won't prescribe it to them. Yeah, and, they're cut off, and, and they're then in now trouble. they're out on the streets, yep. and they're buying opiates. 
It's not a good, it's never, in my mind, going to be a good treatment for a chronic condition. Yeah, and ketamine, of course, is not an opiate, but it's the same concept, right? right? And I just, the studies that I've read on ketamine, I mean, listen, working in mental health, it's always exciting to hear of an innovative way to treat depression. Depression is debilitating. People suffer with depression. It's a real chronic disease that inflicts a lot of suffering. But I'm not sure when I read the studies, I think, wait, really? We're ready to just jump on, you know, we have ketamine uh, uh, doctors prescribing ketamine on a regular basis. Yeah. We have, as a matter of fact, one of them that comes to mind actually just lost his medical license for abusing ketamine, you know? So to me, this is scary. This is again, bringing out the abusable medications to treat conditions that we don't really know long-term effects. We don't really know if they work. I just hate that. Yeah. I hate going there. It just seems like the easy quick fix that doesn't have a long-term solution and has potential to really cause harm. I hate watching that. Yeah. So again, back to this opioid that can, and it's, they're using buprenorphine, a uh, subutex to, to manage the depression and supposedly there's another, it's combined with another blocker that takes away the effects. But man, I just hate seeing that being jumped on as looking, a, as looking an for uh, other uses for opiates, which is causing so many problems. Now, the one good thing about buprenorphine is because of its very long half-life, you don't develop tolerance to it as quickly as you do the shorter acting drugs. So yeah. people can stay on the same doses of buprenorphine for a long period of time. Yeah. so we had the election yesterday okay election election today's wednesday the 7th of november and the elections obviously were yesterday on tuesday yep and what happened in the election that you want to talk about well it looks like uh proposition two is going to pass proposition two appears to have passed in utah yep now if you're listening to us from out of state maybe you don't know what proposition two is uh, our first episode of our podcast was devoted to Proposition Two, and what a uh, and some of the flaws in that bill, and it appears to have passed. Which yeah. means what? It means you know democracy. Yeah, for sure. Go go democracy. You know if if the majority of the people in the state that I live in uh, agree to do something, then I support that. You know, I'm not. For sure. I'm not. That that's that is what it is, and I I can accept that. I think it's quite interesting. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out and what kind of role that takes in our lives uh, here in Utah. Yeah. But you know, one of the things that is obviously notable in our world because we have so many friends and associates in the world of addiction and recovery is how excited. Uh, our friends got who were in recovery about this bill. I thought that was really bizarre. Yeah, not not all of them, of course, but there certainly were a, a large number of people, acquaintances of mine on Facebook that are in recovery that that were pretty excited about this, right? Yeah. Tell us about the uh, tell us about the women jumping in the bar oh, that yeah. you saw on the news the, last the night. The news. 
the news announcement, the picture that they chose, which I always wonder who chooses these pictures sometimes, but so the picture is a bunch of women in what appears to be a bar setting, jumping for joy that this bill passed. And my first thought was, are these the people who are so excited that they are going to help the children with intractable epilepsy <laughs> in the state, right? Because, uh, because that was the emotional draw was, you know, how dare you allow these children to suffer? And, you know, it's just, it's, it's a little interesting. I think, ah, uh, what do I know? Maybe they have children with, with epilepsy. I don't know, but probably not. My they, sh- they probably wouldn't be in a bar. They'd probably ex- be home taking care of their children uh, with intractable epilepsy. Know, maybe, maybe I'm making some assumptions of here, course you but are, it sure but seemed like a, a victory towards we're going to be able to smoke pot now and, and smoke. And I know we touched on that real briefly um, the other day, but it sure seems like vaping. And as long as you don't use an open flame, yep. you're good. You're solid. Yeah, so. well, it's for sure a step along the way to legalizing recreational marijuana. Yeah. Right? So, all right, well, I think I'm with you, though. I, I It's it's really surprising to see people in recovery who are so excited that we've legalized a substance that can addict people. That yeah. just doesn't make a lot of sense to me at all. And anyway. Well, one of the things, one of the things I did... I do feel good about this bill is that over and over and over again it mentions how you need to get a prescription from a physician and when they use that wording very specifically and that's a whole nother topic but it 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 was a great relief for uh i'm not going to have to deal with that in my prescribing practice because as a nurse practitioner i won't be able to prescribe marijuana Uh, so Yay. That just won't be on my lap. Bullcrap. <laughs> That's what I say to that bullcrap. Let the physicians handle that stuff, uh, right? Trust me, trust me, you have a nurse practitioner lobby that's going to be lobbying to <laughs> be equal with physicians in prescribing pot. I guarantee it. Well, well, not today, though. Yeah, not today. Maybe not. Today it's physicians. So go to your local physician. You too. Are you going to give them out my phone number too? Yeah. <laughs> While you're at it? Yep. Uh, yeah. Okay, good. then I think we've, uh, I think you know our feelings on that. Yeah. All right, Great. well, today we wanted to talk as a bigger topic, we wanted to talk a little bit about detox. Just maybe unfold the, some of the mysteries around detox. I don't know if there's a bunch of mysteries, but maybe just describe the process and talk about some of the things as they relate to the disease of addiction and so forth and just maybe provide some education on what happens in detox and that sort of thing. So uh, Kristen and I have both worked at a detox job. We both worked at Next Step Medical Detox together. That was, I was going to say it was the first job we worked together, but it wasn't. That was the second job we ever worked together. And it was just a coincidence that we happened to work that job together. Uh, I was working there, and Kristen was, at the time, a substance use disorder counselor, and she was applying for a job there, and wound up getting that job and doing the best psychosocials assessments ever. Aww. 
God, go on. Like those psychosocial assessments were so good. So good, so thorough. I really loved them. I always used to love it when uh, Kristen was doing psychosocials on our patients. But anyway, we worked that job together. Uh, we also own a company, Kristen and I own a company called Detox One that does private detoxes. We used to uh, do all of the private detoxes for a very popular treatment center here uh, in town who gets a bunch of high-end clientele. And we do it privately. We rent a large cabin up at Sundance and do one-on-one -on -one treatment. And it's a little more luxurious and it's not for everybody and it's kind of high-priced. Um, but it's for those people that don't want to go into a hospital and, and have people around them. And, you know, a lot of, we've done some Hollywood stars and we've done some athletes and we've done some, just some fairly wealthy people that just want a little more luxury than a hospital. Uh, so we have those were, a, those were really fun, by the way. Those were fun. I really liked that. We don't do much of it anymore because the company, uh, the, the treatment center, kind of a nationally known treatment center started doing their own. And they do a way worse job than Kristen and I no. ever did, but we might cut that out. I don't know. Uh, yeah. We might be a little biased, <laughs> yeah. but... Well, we did a good job with those yeah, people, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I was proud of that work. Yeah, we definitely. did good work with those folks. And and listen, we've also both worked at jobs where we get a lot of indigent and homeless people off the streets. And so we've seen both sides of it. Kristen is currently working a job at Highland Ridge Hospital and doing detoxes there. I still do a fair amount of detoxes for all of the treatment centers that I work for. Okay, I finished finished the sentence with four. Prepositions. I still do, I still do a lot of detoxes for the treatment centers. For, I work at. For which I work. <laughs> okay, whatever. Um I guess I'm just trying to say we have a lot of we have a lot of experience in detox. I think so. Yeah, I, I feel like so. I've got a fair handle on how to do detox and what goes into it. So let's just start with who needs detox? Who needs who needs it? Who needs who detox? Needs it? Nobody needs detox. What kind of patients would qualify? I don't know. Again, I fall into this role of asking questions. I don't know that that's the proper role, but let's address uh, what types of substances absolutely need a formal detox or maybe what kind of substances don't need a formal detox yeah let's go with the ones that do first okay well alcohol and benzodiazepines are the two main ones that we are most concerned about as far as appropriately detoxing discontinuation of either alcohol or benzodiazepines after regular use can have some significant uh, deleterious effects so, Such as? Seizure. Okay. Seizure would be the one uh, that we're most concerned about. It does happen. It's, it's uh, not super common, but, um, of course, a seizure is always leads to brain damage. You have some type of damage in a seizure. Yeah. And so even, even quote-unquote, little ones, we want to avoid those because you, that can set up for a, a lifelong issue in your brain so it may not be noticeable sometimes the damage yeah but repeatedly it'll be noticeable eventually and it's there the damage is there whether yeah. it's clinically relevant or not sometimes it's not but that's all right occasionally with alcohol discontinuation you can have dts which is another 
potentially brain damaging issue and actually can lead to death. And, and even life threatening, yeah. Both seizures and DTs can be life threatening. So those are those are things that we definitely want to detox. And typically in the treatment world, we don't want to just bring in a patient who is discontinuing alcohol uh, without them going through a formal detox. It's too dangerous. Have you ever seen a seizure? Have you ever seen an alcohol or benzodiazepine withdrawal related seizure? I have not. I've seen three. Okay. I saw a guy die. Oh, okay. I've seen one person die from a seizure. Okay. And I don't know if he choked on something or what happened. I can't remember, but... Well, that's uh, this was a long time ago. Terrible. Yeah. I have seen I have seen DTs. Yeah. I have oh, yeah. I have uh, experience with that and and that's scary. Yeah. That's scary. That's... So how, so what do you what's what do you do with so what's that detox process look like for uh, an alcohol abuser or a benzodiazepine abuser? So typically we start them on some type of taper that will or medication that will prevent the seizure. Okay. Um, you know, that's our safety's our main concern in detox um, from alcohol and benzodiazepines. And so we'll do a gradual taper depending on how much they've used, how long they've used it for. If they have a history of seizures, of course, that affects the medications and, and the taper. If, they're, if they have comorbid issues, of course, we evaluate that as well. And that will affect their treatment and through the process. So what, what, kind, what are the meds? We use, ben- used. typically, benzodiazepines. We okay, use benzodiazepines. So what are they? What? Um, Ativan's kind of the go-to, very common one. It's the shorter-acting benzodiazepine. So sometimes we use Librium, which is a longer-acting benzodiazepine, to, in, in, for various reasons, we'll use that. What's to, the concept there? Like, why? So, Ativan isn't my go-to. Uh, Librium is. But what is the con... What... So I, I guess I don't need to ask it. I can just well, I talk can, about it. I can, uh, you know, so as far as why we need a benzodiazepine. Sure, there's one thing. So so one of the things that happens with alcohol use and benzodiazepine use is it affects a chemical in your brain called GABA. So you have GABA and glutamate. GABA is what we call the brakes in the brain, and glutamate is the gas. So excitatory is the gas glutamate, and then inhibitory is is the GABA um, that kind of shuts it down. Well, let's note for our listeners, by the way, GABA is a neurotransmitter not in any way, shape, or form related to gabapentin. Oh, thank you. Because sometimes people get that confused. Yeah. Yeah, okay, good point. Gabapentin is not a neurotransmitter, and it's not related to the neurotransmitter GABA. So what happens with repeated use of alcohol, and and people have heard this before, that alcohol is a depressant. So it actually promotes, it works on the GABA system. So it's those breaks in your system. So you use that enough time at times and your brain has a bunch of GABA going on. Well, Well, your body always wants homeostasis. It always wants the balance. And so what we will do again over time is it will adapt to that extra GABA by throwing out a bunch of glutamate, which is the gas, right? Because you want that even keeled balance. So that's how the body uh, and the brain of an alcoholic or benzodiazepine addict works. And when you take away abruptly, you take away those breaks, 
you've still got a bunch of that gas going on. You've still got a bunch of that glutamate. The, Again, ga the gas is going on even in higher amounts, right? Because the body's seeking the homeostasis because alcohol acts like the brakes. Yep. Yep, that's right. You're pouring brakes into your system. You're pouring inhibitory stuff into your system. And your body is, your brain is seeking that homeostasis. So it produces a bunch of the other. So now you take away the brakes. Yeah, and you got a bunch of gas. You got a bunch of gas. So there, you start going a thousand miles an hour, which when your brain goes a thousand miles an hour or fires a thousand miles an hour, we call that a seizure. Yeah. All right. Excellent. Thanks. Uh, um, the question I was driving at is for me, I think one of the things we try to use. So typically addicts and alcoholics like things that have a very rapid onset that is, you get a quicker you get a better buzz out of something that comes on very quickly and that uh, typically drugs that come on very quickly also go away very quickly right and so which is why addicts and alcoholics seek ways to get the medication or the or, or the substance into their system quicker it's why addicts smoke things or snort things or inject them for me, the, one of the concepts that's important in, in detox is using long-acting medications so you don't have the ups and downs that you do, which is why I love Librium. Librium has an, a half-life of somewhere around 36 hours, and it differs in people, but it's somewhere around 36 hours. So if you're using Librium, you don't get a bunch of highs so and lows. And, yeah. and you're trying to have a benzodiazepine, which is breaks on board all the time so that you don't have a seizure. That's why I prefer Librium. Now, typically, the patients don't really love Librium. Well, and that's the problem. That right? is a problem. Because, because the other thing we want to do is, so detox is almost always voluntary. Right? Sure. I can think of very few situations where a, a patient could not leave. And oh, okay. So what you mean is, some yeah, so they can, patients can choose to terminate detox at any point yeah yeah okay yeah and so librium librium tends to be a little bit more of a challenge and i agree with you you know it makes more sense to use the librium but patients don't like it as much um, what, what you're saying is part of the uh part of the concept of detox is to keep the patient happy enough to stay there yeah okay yeah well, i get it that's, yeah, that's no, true, that's true statement. That's a you know, and they're still in their addict brain, right? right? So they're they're wanting to get relief and immediately, and if they don't like the medication, then chance of them um, leaving is higher. So for sure, Librium can tend to be over sedating in some people, and especially with comorbid issues. Every once in a while, I, I like Librium too. I use it as well. I just I like to have the option of both because. Sometimes Librium can be, people don't like it as much, obviously, we already talked about that, but it can be a little over-sedating in some people, especially because of the long half-life. Also, some special circumstances where you wouldn't use Librium is, Librium is metabolized in the liver. If you have liver damage, you wouldn't want to use Librium. There are three benzodiazepines that are not metabolized in the liver, lorazepam, oxazepam, and temazepam. Tamazepam is a very quick-acting medication used for sleep sometimes. I've never seen anybody prescribe oxazepam. It comes in a form called Cirax, but I've never seen anybody use it. Lorazepam is very commonly used. Yeah, that's, that's the, the Ativan. So, 
Ativan is usable in someone with liver damage because it's not metabolized in the liver. Okay, well, so that's why we detox people with alcohol and benzos, right? Yeah. What other types of people do we detox? Opiate, opiate detox is, of course, a, a huge issue and concern in the country and definitely one that we that we do at my facility as well as as many other facilities let's now the problem oh, go ahead let's talk about some of the broad concepts with opiate detox so so what i'm seeing and the problem with opiate detox is when somebody makes the decision to stop using opiates they get incredibly sick yep very, very sick. Yep. I'm a recovering opiate addict. I, I know from personal experience how horrifying it feels to be withdrawing from opiates. It's not very fun. <clears throat> no. It's terribly uncomfortable. No, it's, it's, and, it's rough. But the fear of it is actually possibly worse than the actual... Yeah. Than the actuality, right? Yeah. But... But, it's but actuality is it's pretty terrible. There's no question. I, I uh, and it's don't a wish it on anyone. It's a deterrent to treatment, right? Many opiate addicts don't come to treatment because they're afraid of the of the withdrawals that they're going to have. Yeah. Right? So another broad concept is it's a commonly held belief that opiate detox is not life-threatening. Which is which is a problem. Which is right? which is actually not completely true. It's rare to die during opiate detox, but for sure, people have died during opiate detox. Uh, they tend to be a little more fragile than the uh, a healthy patient. Yeah, they come the in older with, population or comorbid um, right. issues, heart disease, lung issues, COPD, you know, but, those kind of things. But tons of comorbidity amongst long-term opiate users, right? Yeah. Tons of other conditions that contribute to poor health. Okay. Yeah, I'd read I'd read the article recently that talked about metabolic acidosis in in some opiate withdrawals, which can be deadly. Yeah. So I think that that's something I want to look into. A it's a little bit, bit of a fallacy yeah. that it's not that it's not life threatening, but well, to the point that insurance companies don't often pay for it. I think it. there's the point right there, and that's that's a huge problem. And what keeps people from um, getting help in the first place is detox is expensive, and uh, if insurance isn't going to pay for it, then what what options do they have? Right, right, and that's a problem we encounter every day, right. Oh, insurance companies don't pay for opiate detox because apparently, according to them, no one dies from opiate detox, which yeah. is not totally true, but for sure the death rate is going to be less than a, an, an alcoholic or a benzodiazepine addict who abruptly quit. Well, and even if we change that concept into, okay, maybe the, the numbers are, are really low that they would actually die in detox, they... it not allowing opiate detox prevents people from going to treatment. Yep. Which means that they stay in their active addiction, yep. which definitely is leads deadly. to yeah, deadly. overdose and death. The other thing is when did detox nope. The other thing is when did insurance companies stop paying for treating pain and suffering? Well right. Right. Isn't that their huge don't, thing? Don't they pay for an epidural when you're in labor? Yeah. Yes, most of them do. Almost all of them do. Right, because we wouldn't expect someone to go through that much pain and discomfort without alleviating it, alleviating it somehow. And 
listen, I'm not comparing opiate withdrawal to labor. That's not that's not what I'm talking about. I'm really just saying they pay for other forms of pain and suffering. Well, and it's what I'm, pain became the fifth vital sign. Right. I mean, it's definitely out there as far as we need to treat patients' pain. Why is there an exception to, well, we'll treat patients' pain unless they're an, an opiate addict. addict. Yep. And I think that there's the stigma um, that I agree. goes there. Well, we're not, that was their fault for getting in that. And I agree. If you come into the emergency room with a broken arm, you're not going to die from the pain. But We're going to give you something but, for it. And they're going to pay for it. Yeah. So, okay, that's an odd concept. Great point. How do we detox opiate addicts? So opiate detox, um, there's really only a few medications that we can use. We can't actually use um, the opiate that they were on to taper them in a detox facility. It's been made illegal by the federal government, once you've identified someone as an opiate addict, to use an opiate to treat them. However, they have a waiver for two medications. And the two medications that are wavered are methadone and buprenorphine in its varied forms. What do you use for detox of an opiate addict? Buprenorphine. Okay. Uh, very few, very few people use methadone for detox. Well, that's a really, that's not an inpatient detox anyway. Methadone is typically an outpatient um, situation. Uh, and I don't. Methadone is used more commonly for maintenance, maintenance. than it is for detox. Maintenance. I was going to say, I don't, I don't know if they do a ton of detox. It would certainly have to be a very long detox. It would be a very long detox. Methadone, that's a whole nother, uh, I think that's a whole nother podcast, actually. I could for go sure. off on, for on sure. how much the government is pushing for methadone use in, in opiate addicts. But, but we use Subutex. Subutex so is the... What's the ingredient, Subutex? So, so Am I asking questions right in the middle good. before you were about to say it? You're good. It's like Sorry. you're reading my mind. Sorry. Subutex is buprenorphine as opposed to a Suboxone, which is a buprenorphine and zones. a naloxone combination drug that is used more in outpatient. And there's a reason for that because the naloxone, if it is broken down and shot up as in IV form, it prevents the high from happening and so and so it's it's a diversion technique um, often used but in inpatient in a controlled environment we don't really have as much issues with diversion of course we still do but not to the same level and so we typically just use the buprenorphine So we've had a break between the first portion of this podcast and now. When we left off, we were talking about, I think, opiate detox. We wanted to move on. There's not a lot left to talk about with detox, although, let's be honest, we could do six more podcasts on detox as well, but we just wanted to hit kind of the highlights in this podcast. And so there's a few drugs remaining uh, that probably deserve a little attention. We haven't talked at all about stimulants, so let's talk about stimulant detox. There's not much. Yeah, at least not medically with a controlled substance in a controlled environment. We typically don't um, treat methamphetamine uh, use disorder in a detox setting, although there is definitely a detox period. 
people will crash um, and often require a lots of sleep during those first few days when they abruptly stop using their stimulants that their body has become used to. So, right. uh, but again, does it doesn't typically require a detox, uh, a formal detox? Right. It's not. It's not for sure not dangerous. But I think it's hard to get a stimulant person straight into rehab, although that's what we do. But they don't really participate well the first few days because they they're so tired. Right. I mean, has that been your experience? Yeah. Uh, yeah. They, they just crash for a few days, like you said. And so putting them straight into rehab, they're going to waste a couple of days of rehab. But you can't really get them into. OK, but you can't really get them straight. In, like they can't participate in groups very well for the first few days and that sort of thing. So it sure would be nice if insurance would cover a couple of days of, of a, some sort of detox, but they don't. And so. We put them into rehab and they get a 30-day rehab or a 60-day rehab or whatever, you know, whatever they're doing. And they waste the first few days of it because they just can barely stay away. But. Yeah, and most treatment centers recognize that that's going to happen and they just accommodate that. So yeah, I agree. That's been my experience anyway. I agree. The only, I mean, the only problem I see, though, is then they're wasting a few days of rehab, sure. right? They're sure. getting, they're, they're getting... The insurance company's getting charged for 30 days of rehab, but their client's really only getting 28 days of rehab or something. But, um, okay, and then is there any other classes of drugs? You know, and I, I think there, um, there might be a thought out there of, well, then I will taper myself off um, or stop using for three or four days before I go to treatment. And that, that would be great, except that's not typical. People right. who usually need a level of care that is residential treatment, the point of that is, is they cannot stop using on their own. Right. So this idea of, well, just stop using for three or four days and then come to treatment, well, you've kind of disqualified their reason for needing and requiring uh, a higher level of care in the first place. That's a good point. That's a really good point. All right, all I can think of left is marijuana. The pot. The pot. Reefer madness, the weed. The ganj. Uh, what else we got? The chronic. <laughs> what else? There's gotta be other stuff. Oh, there's other stuff. Yeah, there's way too much street slang. Yeah, so so again, same thing. Uh, not There is definitely a detox that happens in people who have regularly used marijuana but again, not typically in need of a formal detox for that. And quite frankly, it takes a good solid month of the detox uh, stuff to happen when you're stopping marijuana use. Yeah, um, so uh, one of the, the interesting things about marijuana is people say there's no physical withdrawal from it, right? Yeah. Which is sort of true. And the reasoning for that is marijuana is uh, our THC is stored in fat cells and so for a chronic user who has a lot of storage going on and listen everybody has fat cells and I don't know that I've ever seen anything that says that fat people store more marijuana than skinny people we all have fat cells um, but it's stored in fat cells so when you quit smoking pot abruptly you still have this stuff in the fat cells that then leaches out and gets into the bloodstream. And so the reason that there is no physical withdrawal 
is because you get this chronic sort of leaching of the THC out of the fat cells. And so they're, even though you abruptly quit using it, it doesn't abruptly get out of your system. Yeah. And so I actually saw uh, an experiment once where they have developed a THC blocker. And when they give someone an injection of this THC blocker, then they get, then they do have an actual physical withdrawal because the THC blocker throws them into immediate withdrawals instead of this leaching out of the fat cells. They get, all of a sudden they get every piece of, every molecule of THC is blocked in their system and they get sick. And it's not a very fun withdrawal uh, from what I read. But the truth is physiologically in the body, that doesn't really happen. Just because there is this sort of biological super slow taper so not much there yeah some of the symptoms we see in marijuana detox uh, that I've seen a uh, headache for sure uh, that first month of stopping um, but but more prominently irritation yeah. irritability yeah, irritability agitation. and agitation yep for sure yeah for sure see a lot of that because uh, you know I think for physiological reasons, but psychological reasons too, that was their coping skill, right? Right. They're they're irritated in their day. They're anxious about something. They yeah. just smoke some weed, and they're that's all good, right? So we've taken away their main coping skill, and that makes people irritable. Right, for sure, for sure. Well, I think you know, for the most part, for sure, there's some other substances. I don't know that we have time to go into every possible substance, ketamine and and spice and kratom and... Although we could talk about kratom real quickly. Well, we can talk about kratom if you want. I saw an article this week that said the FDA, or the DEA, I'm sorry, is considering making kratom a Schedule One substance. Yes, which is about time. Yeah, kratom is, kratom binds to opiate receptors in the brain and acts exactly like an opiate. It's, it's an opiate. But it's one of those opiates that's a natural plant, so people think it's all okay, right? Yeah, just like poppy seeds in my muffins. Right. Every single thing that is an opiate comes from a natural plant. So, um, thanks. My co-host is directing my driving because I'm in the wrong lane. Get over, get over. Yeah, well, I was in the wrong lane. So um, we, we do we do kratom. I just recently did a kratom for detox, sure. uh, and it's similar to the opiate. Uh, we would we would treat it uh, like an opiate detox. Yeah. So interestingly, both I think both Kristen and I, but for sure me, I'm on a number of forums on like Facebook and stuff that are addiction related, and I see all the time patients, not professionals, very often, but patients recommending someone use Kratom to help with their opiate withdrawals. Yeah. Well, well it's it an opiate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you might as well use opiates to help with your opiate withdrawals because yeah. that's what you're doing. It's just as addictive. It's just as natural. I'm sorry, but Kratom is no more natural than poppies. Yeah. So. And we know people who've lost their medical license from Kratom absolutely. use. Absolutely. Right? Only that natural. So. For sure. So that I think the last suck. point I think the last point that I want to make as far as detox goes is making sure that the public is aware that if you or a loved one uh, 
end up needing detox for all the reasons that we suggested or others. Detox is not treatment. So if your loved one says, yes, I have an alcohol problem, I'm gonna go to detox and we're gonna be good, you might want to uh, reconsider that because this is just the process of getting somebody medically stable so that they are able to then go into treatment. For sure. We do not consider detox treatment. For sure, and we see that all the time, right? People come in and get clean for a few days, yeah. and all of a sudden they're clear-headed and, um, you know, maybe not totally clear-headed after three or four days, but for sure way more clear-headed than they were four days ago. And all of a sudden they think they've got it all figured out. And so, you know, people might commit to going to treatment on an initial like intervention, for example, and they'll say, yeah, I'll go to detox and treatment. And then they get into detox and say, oh, I feel way better. I think I, I think I can handle this on my own now. Yeah, they're and still left with the disease of addiction. Right, and it's not, it didn't, detox has not been shown to increase your chances of staying clean and sober. Yeah. So, um, important point. So, yeah, that's a great point. That's probably a great point to end on is detox is really important in the process for a number of medications and drugs and alcohol, but it is not treatment. It doesn't help people in the long run. It just gets them ready to be capable of attending a rehab. Yeah. Uh, anything else that you can think of? Um, I asked you a question. I think that's it. I like your questions. That's good. <laughs> wow. Uh, I'd say, Her nose just grew about I'd an inch. I'd say go Cougars. <laughs> go Cougars. And uh, have a beautiful day. I think uh, look forward to our next podcast. And we have a, a couple of different ideas of things we want to talk about. But please feel free to reach out to us if you ever have anything that you want us to discuss. Um, we would love to research it and discuss for uh, sure. the podcast. Yeah, for sure. For those of you that don't know us very well, Chris and I are both fans of BYU. Don't hold it against us. I have a dear friend who just texted me, frankly, who always says to me, hey, you're just going to have to live with it. Everybody hates BYU. <laughs> uh, so um, that's probably true. But when we say go Cougars, we're not talking about the Houston Cougars or the Eastern Washington. I mean, the Washington State Cougars. Go BYU. <laughs> have a beautiful day. Bye-bye. Next time on our podcast, I think we're going to talk about body brokering, although we usually make up the topic about two minutes before we start. So <laughs> okay. we'll see how Look it goes. Look forward to that. All right. See ya. Have a beautiful day.